Welcome into the Better Advertising with Better AMS podcast. My name is Justin Knuckles. I am your host, joined alongside my co-host, Destiny Washan. Today, we're doing things a little bit different. Here, we usually talk advertising, but as everyone has seen in the last two to three years, um, especially with pandemic and, and supply chain issues, if your product's not in stock, your ads are not running. So how do we solve that problem outside of Amazon? We're joined today by David Glick, the Chief Technology Officer of Flex. Welcome in, David. Hey, thanks for having me. And hopefully your ads aren't running when you're out of stock. <laughs> That'd be the worst thing, right? Is you're, you're, you're running your ads and you're, in, you're out of stock. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of Amazon shutting off our ads for us when, when we go out of stock. But it's another problem keeping your products in stock. And so, um, you know, you've been with Flex for a little while now. Um, would love you to just come in and tell our audience, you know, what is multi-channel fulfillment? What is Flex and what you guys do? Yeah, um, so I've been at Flex about three and a half years. The company is nine years old. And I'll tell you the origin story, which is often the best way to talk about what we do is um, my boss, Carl, who's our founder, he was at a cocktail party uh, with a guy who was an Amazon seller, and he had his uh, private brand of barware. So, you know, coasters and glasses. And he said, I'm about to sign a five-year lease for space I don't need because I, I can't get a one-year lease for 20,000 square feet. Yeah. I have to get a five-year five or contract with a 3PL for 100,000 yeah. square feet. And I don't know what I'm going to need in five years. So if you could solve that problem for me and get me 20,000 square feet for three months to stage inventory going into Amazon, like I'd be your first customer. And so that that's how we started. And the idea is uh, 3PL business or logistics generally is a very batchy business to use the Amazon terminology, you know, big upfront capital, um, long-term contracts. And we want to move closer to single piece flow where you can move in and out of warehouses um, on a monthly or three monthly timescale. And as your demand changes, you can change your warehouse configuration. And so that's, that's the upshot of flex. Exactly. Flex, flexible, <laughs> flexible planning <laughs> month to month, be scrappy, right? Out of curiosity, something that we saw is, you know, when all the supply chain issues first hit and Amazon was, you know, putting a lot of limitations in place, everything that was going on with COVID, a lot of our brands were trying to shift really quickly to 3P or 3PL and focusing on kind of that fulfilled by merchant model. How do you forecast demand in everything that's going on now? Our brands are struggling to do it. Have you been able to do it or anything that you found worked well? Yeah, forecasting's hard. <laughs> you know, that, when I was at Amazon, I ran um, the pricing system, and the guy next door to me, this guy named Dillip, and he ran the forecasting system. And I'd say, I'd rather much rather have my job than your job, <laughs> because looking into the future is hard in the best of times. Yeah. But then add you know six to twelve to eighteen weeks sitting in the harbor at Long Beach, and add like the the Fed's raising rates or they're not raising rates, and we've got a war and all those things make it almost impossible to forecast. And so, what do you do? One way to think about it is it's much easier to forecast short distances. Mm -hmm. And so, and again, th there's ups, ups and downs to this, but like if you have to bring everything from China and you have a six to 18 week lead time, that's very hard to forecast. If you've got some, some onshore inventory in California or in Texas or wherever, you just have to forecast to the replenishment lead time rather than the vendor lead time. And, you know, that has the downside of having to hold inventory. Right? Nobody wants to hold inventory. And so I think we're moving from sort of just-in-time inventory to just-in-case inventory. I think that's mm -hmm. the cliche uh, people yeah. are talking about. And then, then you have to balance, like, can I afford to hold that inventory 
versus can I afford to be out of stock? And and when the underlying circumstances change, that cal- that calculation, that calculus changes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, back in my private label days, I used to sell supplements as well. And we had some great suppliers who would actually just hold inventory that we had already purchased. And, yeah. you know, the second we called them up and said, hey, our Amazon inventory is low. Can you send some into a distribution center? They'd send it right in. So it's essentially you stepping into that role now. You know, again, for with Flex, you have brands who are saying, uh, you know, I have this problem. I've got all this excess inventory right now, but uh, I don't want to sign a five-year lease because in five years, I won't have this excess inventory. So, you know, how can we... You know, either store that inventory or move it around in a way that uh, works in much closer to what you need rather than the traditional model of you know big batches, high capital, long-term contracts. A key piece that I think that I would really like to highlight is you stated what's more expensive, holding that inventory and having it just in case or the loss of rank and the loss of not being in stock and all of those missed sales. Cause you're not just missing sales. It's not necessarily like a retail shelf where if you're not there, you're not there. You're actually missing future sales as well, because when you're out of stock, you're typically going to have a much lower rank when you return. And then you're going to have to spend more in ad cost, and it's a whole uphill battle. And finding that number is really hard because a lot of people, you know, don't like to think about what's going to happen after the go to stock. They'd rather just pretend that they're not. So they may not realize those costs up front. So that's a, a really big call out. Yeah, especially on Amazon, where you have like the only true competitive marketplace where you have infinite number of sellers or, you know, yeah. 10, 12, yeah. uh, up to 100 sellers on a single SKU. And, you know, for, if you're uh, a private label brand who like manage your channel really tightly, maybe you have that you know, that skew all to yourself, but almost nobody does that, right? So you have other sellers who are going to pick up the sale or you're yeah. going to say, oh, I don't want this color duct tape. I'll buy this other brand because, you know, the blue one's out. So I want the, the silver one. Yeah. And and that's a lost, not only lost sale, it's a lost downstream value, yeah. right? Question for you on that just in case inventory. I like that acronym. Do you see a lot of the people that work with Flex tend to send in their entire catalog or, you know, a portion of all their SKUs to to be just in case? Or is it really just best sellers or top sellers that they know will continue to be in demand down the line? Yeah, I mean, I can I, I want to make a caveat, which is sort of a mismatch with this podcast that mostly we are working with enterprise clients. Yep. I won't name any, but we have six of the top 10 retailers and you know, big CPG companies. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we found or we believe is the future is that some of these even big retailers are r- running a single warehouse in Tennessee or Kentucky. And so they have three to seven days or three to 10 days delivery time. And so, you know, one of the things we believe is a killer app for Flex is to say, take your top 10% or 20% of the SKUs, push them, you know, forward deploy them just like Amazon does. Uh, and maybe you want to build a three node or a five node or a 10 node network to drive down transportation costs uh, and and improve uh, transit times, which will you know drive, you know, we know that faster delivery drives sales both on Amazon and off of Amazon. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, I always think of the Maytag repairman sitting in the, the Tennessee warehouse. You guys know that reference? <laughs> or am I too old? Unfamiliar. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, Maytag used to run these, ads that had the Maytag repairman would just sit around because their, their, uh, <laughs> their washers work so well, you didn't have anything to do. Yep. And yeah. so you think about if you push out all your fast movers and then you have a single box in Tennessee, which has all your slow movers, you can have like one person in the warehouse 
who walks around and does one one pick wave a day and sends those out. And you know, I think Amazon's even built a low capital warehouse for um, slow movers, and exactly this reason because they're um, you know they're robotic FCs, which they spend hundreds of millions of dollars per box on. Uh, they are optimized for outbound, right? They want to amortize that over outbound shipments uh, with FBA or first party. Uh, and so they want to keep slow movers out of there. And that's why you see AWD, uh, which is Amazon Ware- Warehousing and Distribution, which is something we did a similar program for where you're staging inventory. You know, you bring, this may be a solution to your sellers who are bringing lots of inventory in, right? You stage it in a low capital warehouse and you can bring six containers in Amazon only wants two pallets, right? They don't want 10 weeks of cover. They want two days of cover. And so, and, and I think this will work well with Amazon as they build a vertical integration. You bring six containers in, store it in, in you know, Aunt 8 or whatever is, you know, Aunt 23, I guess now. Yeah. Uh, you know, store it in one of those warehouses. And then your replenishment lead time is how long it takes you to get on a truck through an IXD into a warehouse. And so I think that's a very powerful uh, way of storing your inventory because it's 10 bucks a pallet a month instead of 90 ish. Yeah. The fulfillment costs in Amazon, I mean, like you said, they're limited first off, but second off, it can get costly if they're sitting there long enough. So huge benefit upside. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the product offerings that you, you have at flex, um, to name a few flexible fulfillment, rapid replenishment and inventory overflow. Can you just give our audience maybe a little bit of a insight into those and elevator pitch, if you will, uh, to what those look like? Yeah. So those are some fancy names. Um, you know, one of the interesting thing is we saw a lot of our quote competitors, um, popped up to be FBA clones. You know, Deliverer was the one who got the brass ring, right? They mm-hmm. they, uh, they they made off like bandits. Uh, but you got Ship Bob and Ship Monk and Ship Hero and Ship Star, Flow Space, Store, all these folks. Um, and they focused really on fulfillment. And what we've done is focused on fulfillment and distribution and capacity. And, and what does that mean? Fulfillment is what we all, you know, think about first is sending each is to customers. Distribution is moving pallets or truckloads uh, from a for example, staging warehouse to a fulfillment center or from a a distribution center to stores. And that's the rapid replenishment that you talked about. And then there's uh, inventory overflow, I think is the the name of the third program you talked about or you mentioned. And that's just like, hey, you know, we need to store some stuff. Like we we bought uh, half a million square feet of drills, right? We got a deal by and we need to put them there for a year. Yep. Uh, And so can you store those for us? And we can turn that around like, six to eight days where traditionally, um, you know, if you were going to contract with a traditional 3PL, it may take six to nine months to set up, uh, you know, set up a warehouse and configure it correctly and buy your Manhattan warehouse management system and all this thing. And so, you know, what we've tried to do is, is focus on being nimble um, for fulfillment and distribution and capacity. And, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see in the future, you know, what happens with fulfillment. Because when I was at Amazon, you know, 10 years ago, we had a product called WebStore. I don't know if you all remember WebStore. We shut it down, but it was basically Shopify. Mm -hmm. It was, you can, um, you can have your own website um, and, you know, we'll charge you whatever, two to 3% to take payments and fraud and this thing. Or you can sell on Marketplace, MAT. And um, what we found is that almost no brands could get enough traffic 
to drive people to web store and make it profitable for them or us. Whereas marketplace there, that's where all the traffic is. And so enter Shopify in 2013, actually, actually Amazon, when we shut down web store, sent customers to Shopify, sent sellers and said, we think you should use Shopify. And, you know, they've had you know, lots of successes, you know, Dollar Shave Club and Harry's and all these folks were very successful when it was a $5 CAC on Facebook. Today, <laughs> the $200 CAC on Facebook. So I, I have believed and still believe that it's going to be really freaking hard for these direct consumers who are not on Amazon. Uh, and you've seen Shopify's uh, market cap dive. Uh, because you had all these folks who are running on free venture money trying to be the next dollar shave club. And I just saw Packable uh, packed up. That was the number one or two seller. Yep. Um, You know, and I'm sure there's, I'm sure you all know a thousand sellers who, who've had to, um, who are struggling and, you know, the high flying, the Glossiers and the, um, there's another one of these fashion brands, maybe Rent the Runway or Stitch Fix. These folks, uh, who are running on venture money, uh, I'm sure there's going to be challenges ahead. A hundred percent. I mean, even on the Amazon side, you know, advertising costs are just getting more expensive. And I think dealing with what we're potentially dealing with in terms of external factors, it is, it's going to come down to brands. Um, I think it's going to come down. The future is exciting in terms of customization and a lot of things that you're talking about here. But I think for the next few months, it's really going to be about zeroing in who has great runway, who has the capital to push through on minimal margins as we try to figure out, you know, what's the best way to drive cost per acquisition in general, whether that is social traffic, whether it's Amazon advertising. I think something that's exciting about that space is it takes a new platform, new platform like TikTok, you know, Figure that out. And then, hey, okay, we're maxing out because all of your advertisers are flooding there. Let's go to the next platform and let's figure out what really resonates with our audience. But all of that takes human capital to manage. And I think that's where these brands and these companies like Packable are struggling is it's really expensive to do that and to figure out that sweet spot. Totally. And, you know, it was easy to say, oh, we're going to advertise on Facebook and Google and then we're going to advertise on Amazon. Now that got expensive too. And it's like, what's the next channel? And is it like, do you go get the Kardashians or, you know, now there's agencies, which, which yeah. have influencers and you can go and say, well, I ship meat, <laughs> right? I'm crowd cow. I ship meat. Do you have an influencer who can help me uh, attract meat eaters uh, and so on? And, and that may be a good place to get into, right? Is, you know, how do you, how do you make it easy to transact with influencers? Well, just exactly what you're doing on the supply chain model. I feel like that's what we're having to do on the advertising side is e-commerce has caused there to be more flexibility in commerce than ever before. You look at the last 100 years of just selling anything and it's pretty consistent. It was location, location, location. You know, you just put your store, put your Walmart, your Dollar General, wherever a lot of foot traffic was. Nowadays, it takes Amazon rolling out one new initiative to completely change someone's business model or a service like TikTok to completely overcome Google and as quick as they did. So I think that's really exciting, but it's really putting pressure on all of these companies that have been like very systems oriented, you know, very much focused on their retail game are now being thrown off because they need to be a lot quicker. They need to make decisions a lot faster and change their organizational structure a lot quicker. Amazon advertising might be the best game in town, but you know the sellers are being squeezed from both sides, yeah. right? Yeah. They're, 
the FBA fees are going up, the advertising fees are going up, the, their costs are going up. They're, you know, they're, they were paying $20,000 a container a few weeks ago. Interestingly, like from a logistics standpoint, like I, I wrote a, I wrote a presentation I'm going to give next week at the parcel forum. And I was like, everything's constrained. Long Beach is backed up, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, we have to change the whole presentation because it's like, there's plenty of capacity in Long Beach. There's, you know, UPS <laughs> is going to be over capacity this year. Yep. We have a freight recession. And so it is, again, going back to what we talked about above, the scrappy sellers who are like, man, the world's going to throw shit at me. And Amazon, like Amazon's right at the tip of the spear of trying to screw me. Uh, I mean, not trying to rejigger the algorithms in a way yes. uh, that, that optimizes for the customer, ideally, uh, the, the buying customer and drives more traffic to me. But it feels painful uh, when the algorithms change. And I think on the private label brand side, it's it's a lot of solopreneurs that are in a cash flow intensive business. I mean, yeah. most people have read Shoe Dog and they've heard of Nike's story up until the IPO. He was strapped for cash. It's very yeah. similar, especially in Q3. All of your money's tied up in inventory. You're trying to maintain velocity and you don't have the cash flow reserves that the Johnson and the Johnson, the Procter and Gamble have. So I think a little bit, I feel like Justin would love to hear your insight. You've dealt a lot with this. A lot of what we're doing is just educating that this isn't a solo experience for the seller. This is something everyone's dealing with. And it's really going to come down to, like you said, who's keeping track of your numbers and who's willing to play the long-term game and hit that economies of sell. I mean, I think all brand building is just going to be economies of scale in the future until we have, you know, those very low CPMs again. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the business has been changing. E-commerce has been changing so quickly in the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic, really putting a focus on e-commerce. But, you know, back when I ran private label, it was very much just in time inventory. So just that one aspect, it's it's playing the long game, you know, banking on your best sellers and having inventory ready to go um, as one aspect. But going back to the scrappiness, too, and sellers looking for you know, greener pastures. Uh, I think a lot of people are looking to Walmart too. Um, that's something that we did, um, looking to, you know, cheaper advertising, um, less competition there. So, um, David, have you guys been working with Walmart, with Walmart sellers? Uh, we haven't uh, worked so much with Walmart sellers. I think Deliverer actually, that was the, the thing that boosted them because Walmart has in their contract with sellers that you can't use FBA to deliver goods that are bought on Walmart. And so Deliverer did a deal with them early on and that sort of kickstarted where where they went. You know, I'm curious to know like what is the sales on a for a Walmart.com seller who sells also on Amazon.com is my assumption is it's like two to three percent, but like I have no insight to it. I'll I'll hop on this one real fast. I'm based in Bentonville. So I am <laughs> always going to be a fan, but I pretty much view the market between PL and Enterprise and your enterprise is, of course, where Walmart's been successful since day one. Yeah. So all of our enterprise brands that are on Walmart, it may be a little bit harder on .com, but you can justify it by in-store sales increases. So for the largest brands, you typically get that data. So, of course, you're going to need to showcase where you're at. Now, something that I think makes it a lot more complex for Walmart, especially on the advertising side and the supply chain side, is you need to show products on .com that are typically localized within your store. So you're actually having to have geography play a much larger dynamic on your marketplace. So on the private label side, though, it does come to more of a specific audience. It's typically lower income audience than what we see on Amazon. So 
if you have a product that fits that demographic, it does really well. But uh, I think the supply chain game between Amazon and Walmart is going to be very, very interesting to see how, you know, Walmart handles turning a lot of their stores into DCs and how they end up competing. We're doing, you know, drone delivery here right now. So I think it's, it's going to be a fun, fun space to be in. I mean, an interesting uh, anecdote is I started in Amazon in late 98 and we, we, uh, we built five, our first five big boxes which had all the automation in, and it was mm-hmm. we had hired a bunch of folks from Walmart to to be the designers of this system, and they brought their vendors and all this, and they built a perfect high 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 volume distribution center where you could send cases to stores. Mm-hmm. Turns out that's not what we were doing. <laughs> we were shipping each as to customers, and so we ended up having to over the next ten years, you know, yep. rewrite all the software and change the automation and so on. Um, and now today. You see a huge migration of Amazonians to Walmart. So Dave yes. Gugina is the SVP who just designed yeah. this building in Joliet. Suresh Kumar is my old boss. He's the CTO. Yeah. Um, Jaray Buckley-Cox uh, runs yeah. WFS. Like, uh, and, and on and on, you're seeing this movement back and forth, which is kind of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun living here and kind of seeing the investments that are being made. It's really fun, you know, me. We manage, I think we'll manage $55 million worth of ad spend this year. And I'm still a fan of Walmart. I yeah. I am 100% all in Walmart. So I talked to so many Amazon brands and, you know, that's their heart and soul. And they like, it's a disgrace to talk about Walmart. And I'm like, they're still the largest retailer. I may only have 12 <laughs> more months to say this, but I will, I will fight for Walmart to the day's end. Well, I, it's funny because people, people say that and I'm like, well, GMS wise, I think Amazon's the largest retailer, yep. but um, yeah, there's only one Fortune One company so far that yes. I know of <laughs> at a time. It's about time we give Amazon a little bit of competition. So what, <laughs> one thing that's really cool about Walmart is I feel like the features that roll up there are, are even coming quicker than than Amazon. Um, so it's becoming a better and better place to be. It seems like the innovation that I've been watching over the last three or four years there is accelerating. I give... Uh, you know, I like to give credit to people I know, but, you know, Suresh came in and, you know, traditionally Walmart had used third-party vendors for everything, right? They they didn't have a CTO, they had a CIO, and the CIO's job is to stitch together disparate systems from lots of different vendors. And as, you know, they've come up and built their in-house tech team, which under a CTO as opposed to a CIO, uh, that allows them to innovate more quickly as they clear some of this tech debt. Speaking as of CTOs, you yourself as one, what does that look like within Flex? I mean, you guys are very technology forward, technology powered, omni-channel program. What, you know, what does that mean to, to our listeners? What does that look like? You know, it's interesting. We chose to build our own tech stack, our own warehouse management system, our own order management system, um, our own integration system. And, you know, many of the competitors have, have licensed Logiwa or Manhattan or High Jump or one of these systems. And so the bad part of that is we started from zero and our sales guys would say, uh, this is table stakes. Of course we need, like, you mean you can't put a label on a thing and put it on a truck? And so that's where I was kind of when we came in and we ended up building three different code bases, one for fulfillment, one for capacity and one for distribution uh, because it was easier when, we, when a new customer came in and said, this is what I need. It, w- it was kind of easier just to build from scratch and so now as, as our capabilities are growing, we, are, we have a lot of infrastructure projects to converge the code bases. We say the C word at Amazon. Nobody wanted to talk about convergence, if you remember. 
single detail page versus marketplace back in the day. There was a big convergence project. Anyway, I have to do that. And then we have to build features to support more and more complex use cases. So from the fulfillment side, I think about it as a, a three-sided box or a cube, which is, you know, how many SKUs can we support? How many uh, order complexity, like how many units per order? And then how much volume? And so we want to go from being able to support 200 SKUs to 500 SKUs to infinite SKUs. And from being only to, able to ship singles where we were three years ago to we can put five things in a box at scale. Um, and then we want to go, you know, have infinite volume. Yeah. My guiding tenant, which I've put around the company is we never want to bolt anything to the floor. And so, you know, we want to do as much, um, as many SKUs, as, as much order complexity, as much volume without having any automation. And it turns out that almost every seller can be supported with that. Like, obviously, Amazon needs a ton of automation. Walmart needs a ton of automation. But as you get beyond the two of them and maybe Target, like, you could run the biggest retailers in the country. You could run their .com with no automation. That's interesting to hear you say that. Like, I mean, technology first, you you think you would love automation. So that's, that's interesting to hear you say that. It's it's funny because uh, our sales guys said, we need robots. Like, bring me a customer who needs robots, who actually needs robots, yeah. and I will integrate robots. Uh, but I lived through, like, building the wrong system in 1999 at Amazon. It took years to un undo. I, I watched through Tesla setting up their fully robotic Model 3 production line and then building cars in the parking lot because the robots didn't have the right capacity. Um, and so, you know, you will hear me say this over and over again. If you do not uh, deeply understand your processes, be they manual or automated, do not use automation. Automation is not the solve for, until you deeply understand. And so when Amazon bought Kiva, Kiva Systems, the robots, we put like a hundred engineers on that and, and the Kiva folks are like, this is how we do it. And we're like, nope, we want you to do this little piece and we will do the rest. And, uh, but it still took like a hundred engineers, five years to get it. So it was something we could be proud of. And so, but that was already, we deeply understood how our systems work and we were able to, to integrate it well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You can't automate what you don't understand. So you have to know your process um, to write the automation. Absolutely. Yeah. We even see large CPG brands that are doing similar on the manufacturing side with the micro manufacturing. It's, it's interesting seeing us have the capabilities to mass produce everything and send it to everyone within 48 hours has been really cool and exciting. But now the next competitive advantage is how do I create customization and localization so I think that's a great call out of automation is fantastic if we're all going to be doing the exact same thing for the next 50 years, but we're not. So I think customers are valuing that flexibility quite a bit more. And if we're seeing it in the two core backbones of society, which is manufacturing and distribution, we're probably going to see it in a ton of other areas as well. Yeah. And, you know, you, you see folks have these big shops, big automated shops. I think like Nike has a big automated shop in Memphis or something. And, uh, you know, others have big automated shops and, and it's not clear that the workers there are happy, right? And that like things are going well. Yep. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, and so you're like, our theme is like, don't have like one high volume big box, which is hard to run and you have to impedance match 
the output from picking into the input of packing, build 10 small boxes, which are all easier to run and reduces your last mile. Uh, and that's that's a winner much more than shipping everything from a hard to run long zone intensive uh, center of the country. And so, you know, until flex, that was cost prohibitive um, because you had to like go sign up with a bunch of different 3PLs or lay your own concrete, which is what Amazon did. With flex, uh, it's no longer cost prohibitive because there's no fixed costs and no long-term contract. Um, but it's funny because we say, oh, this is seems like a no-brainer. But then it turns out, oh, you have to ship. You have to ship inbound to 10 different buildings. True. And so your buyers have to cut POs to your vendors to 10 different buildings. And you have to still try to fill, fill the trucks. And so, you know, as you remove one layer of the onion, the next one pops up. And so um, that's that's something for your listeners to think about is like, how do I forward deploy and, yeah. you know, without capital? And then do I have the systems to do that? Definitely. One last question for you here, David. What, I mean, I love your leadership approach. I've listened to your your approach to, you know, you, you love to hire firefighters. I think you said you, you <laughs> like people that run into fires that don't run away from them. Um, between that and your, your approach to logistics, I mean, what, who are some of your, you know, favorite podcasts or people you like to listen to that, you know, we could bring on the podcast and pick their brain? Hmm, that's a great question. You know, Rick, Rick Watson, you know, Rick, right? I'm sure. Uh, the Watson Weekly is a yes, podcaster yes. who he and I did a presentation together. I'm, I'm sure you, you've run into him from time to time. Um, from a leadership perspective, uh, there's a guy named Ethan Evans who left Amazon. He was a VP as well, and he's now a leadership coach. Um, he's got many of, I would say, probably the same opinions as I do in terms of how do you develop great leaders and how do you yeah. coach and empower um, so those are two examples. I was listening to the, the uh, pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, but it sort of turned into like, uh, just complaining about Facebook and Elon. Uh, so I stopped listening to <laughs> well, that. <laughs> that happens across all social platforms. It seems <laughs> that's right. And then I'm, I've been listening to the all in podcast, which is a bunch of tech bros um, you know, who made a bunch of money when they were young being venture capitalists or working at Google <laughs> or something. And, um, you know, that's interesting, but, uh, you know, actually I've started listening to, uh, this audible book, which I recommend highly. It's called the end of the world is just the beginning. And, um, it's guy by a guy named James Zehan. And he basically talks about how this period of prosperity that we've had over the last 80 years is not like, it's not up and to the right. It's an anomaly. <laughs> Because at the end of World War II, rather than sort of leave, you know, the U.S. could have run the world. They had troops in 108 countries at the end of World War II. Instead, they said, we're going to go the other way and we are going to open our markets, which are the only markets left in the world <laughs> to you. We are going to use our Navy to protect trade, which is the only Navy left in the world. And that has led to this huge economic explosion because everything's free to ship, right? You can sh ship a pair of shoes from China for 11 cents, as that has led to the globalization, as a variety of things happen, you know, labor shortages, you know, the, the world is not repopul you know, not reproducing at a, at a sustainable rate, all of these things, uh, you know, fuel shortages, the war in the Ukraine uh, are leading to, um, you know, bad things going to happen. I, yeah. I, I kind of leave it at that. <laughs> 
Definitely some uh, some new podcasts and, and books to check out. I always love asking that question and, and getting my my listening list put together. So <laughs> it's great content. Appreciate that. Yeah, my, my friends were asking me if I got a, a Amazon Associates affiliate fee uh, for <laughs> recommending that book. Uh, but it, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Should be getting your affiliate on that one. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, David, for being here. I appreciate the time today. Um, we would love to have you back on at another time. But for now, appreciate it. And you have a great rest of your day. All right. You too.